Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be talking about all things pencil. Um, this is one of the uh, editions of the Object Lesson series from Bloomsbury that are very cool looking little books. Seriously, if you've not uh, if you don't have a mental image of this series, please go look it up now um, because they're very interesting and it's a particular way of thinking about objects. This one that we get to talk about today is, as I mentioned, The Pencil. And we have with us the author, Carol Beggy, to tell us all about her thoughts on The Pencil. So, Carol, thank you so much for being here. I'm quite looking forward to this. <laughs> thank you for having me. I always get a bit of a chuckle out of uh, hearing that the, the book is now out and that this thing that I've carried around in my pocket for years <laughs> is actually celebrated in print. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm not the first to write about pencils, and I do in the book give a nod to that. But, you know, for years, I was, um, I was a daily journalist back when we killed trees and printed our news uh, on paper and put it around. So a pencil was always something that I had for my days in elementary school, uh, of course, through college, everything else. You, you didn't always use a pen. You used a pencil. Uh, there was no such thing as computers. I'm that old. Certainly not in classrooms, really. They were a special thing. And so, uh, you know, I now work as a freelance writer and editor, and I do some public relations. And uh, being a lifelong pencil user, a committed pencil lover, a fan of all things analog, uh, this book grew out of that. But I don't want folks to think that I hate technology. I'm here on a podcast. I celebrate this. <laughs> um, and, I, and I do that in the rest of my life. I use my cell phone for everything now. Um, and I'm more than a little uh, struck by how my cell phone has more memory than uh, the entire mainframe of the Boston Globe when I first started to work there, right? I can carry in my pocket the ability to find that, and I'm sure we'll get into this later in some of the questions. That's also meant that I can find people who like my pencil, right? You know, this this thing that I like, and I can now be in new communities. So I am one of those people, and I hope people hear that, that I celebrate and adore the pencil, but I am not someone who uh, hates the the modern technology. I mean, we can love both, right? Right. That's exactly my point. And thank yeah. you for putting it so succinctly. Yes. Well, let, let's love um, both of the things and use <laughs> the technology to talk about the analog device. Starting right back at the beginning, as seems sort of obvious, right? The, the kind of obvious first question after sort of, Carol, why are you obsessed with pencils? You've told us a bit about that. So the obvious next question is sort of, where does the pencil come from? But one thing that I always find fascinating, especially with um, books in this series that focus each on an individual object, is that kind of straightforward question often has a much more complicated answer. So do we even have an origin story of the pencil? Is there somewhere you can take us back to? We, we, do, know, uh, we do know a lot about how pencils came into being, and we do... Ha- have a lot of documentation in how they became so popular. And part of that is, like so many other things in life, ease in use and the ability to manufacture things cheaply and get them around the world. But it's a lot more romantic than all of that. You know, there is the finding of, uh, you know, the graphite uh, deposits in Borrowdale. In the UK, uh, you all were wonderful about part of this story in that, you know, a, a, uh, lightning strike, a, a, a regular natural occurrence unearthed a lot of graphite. And so you can see then a direct line to when things started to move in in like the 1500s, 1600s in the UK. The oldest known pencil that's really like a pencil with two slabs of wood tied together uh, that's been found was considered to be a carpenter's pencil. It was found in a house and Eber, excuse me, Faber-Castell has it on display. Uh, in their headquarters in, in Germany. So we, we've seen things pop up, but really um, we, we know that since the mid 1600s, uh, pencils very much like what we use 
today. Maybe not the same color and not embossed and not this, but pencils as an object you would recognize as a pencil have been around since the mid 1600s. And they have, like so many other things, I guess, uh, were originally uh, the, the objects, the things that were owned by the wealthiest, of course, right? Because who could afford to have something made and people who lived in, uh, you know, houses and maybe in the poorer neighborhoods, whatever, certainly couldn't have a pencil in their home. They didn't have one access to one. But uh, we know that they've been out there and many companies have come and gone and they've all kept their, uh, you know, that graphite core. And, and that's why I keep going back to graphite or carbon. Uh, we all say, get the lead out. And everybody always talks about lead. There is no lead in the middle of a pencil. Um, it is a mix of graphite and wax. And those things are kept very secret, sort of like the sauce on a Big Mac or, you know, how they make their ketchup or, you know, what goes into certain um, software and things people keep very close. But um, we, we do know that it's been made pretty much the same way by people in factories with wood slats and uh, putting that, that core together and then selling them. And we've all been using them the same way since. Well, so I'd like to ask, in fact, about how they're used um, by a sort of niche community that you happen to, as you've already mentioned, um, been a longtime member of. That is, of course, journalists or reporters. Mm. You talk um, very entertainingly in the book <laughs> about kind of how reporters uh, used to and probably still do kind of think about writing implements, including but not limited to the pencil. Can you walk us through kind of that mindset and the lessons you were taught um, in terms of what sort of writing things do you need for what and where a pencil fits in? Right. Well, it's it's, you know, the tools of the journalism trade uh, back when I first started, you rarely took out any kind of recording equipment because if you were a print journalist, because it was it was so big, right, and cumbersome and all of that. Um, And what had happened for years. You'd never see, even in the old movies when when folks watch, you will never see a reporter of any type um, use any kind of an ink pen for the very reason that uh, my opening, uh, you know, my opening story anecdote is, you know, they can fail you, right, in the book, that, that ink can splatter everywhere and it's very unreliable. And so reporters have been using pencils for forever. And there are these stories and even in the spy museum and part of the Smithsonian in Washington, DC, you know, these tiny little pencils because people would write in their pocket and you couldn't easily do that with, with with an ink pen um, that they write in their pocket, but a pencil won't fail you. There are times when it can't do everything. So reporters always carried pencils and let's say that you get out there and you, uh, you break the point of a pencil, guess what you can do? You can snap it. I know some of my pencil fans just gasp because they don't like violence to happen to their pencil. But you can snap a pencil in half. And in fact, you'll have two pieces of things that will write, right? So we use pencils for all of those uh, times when you just need to be able to write. But what we were trained to do from the very earliest times, and this came to us, I've since found since writing the book, um, some of the older editors uh, that I had worked with or people, um, we got a lot of our training came from people in the military, particularly like British fighter pilots and, uh, you know, U.S. combat veterans in World War II, and uh, that you use a felt tip pen once they came into being because it can write in cold, but a felt tip pen can fail you in a lot of water, right? A ballpoint pen, which is also an affectation of that mid, uh, you know, it only came to being in the mid 20th century. Um, A ballpoint pen can work in a lot of situations that a felt tip pen can't work or the pencil's not the perfect choice. But a ballpoint pen will fail you in extreme temperature and it does not write upside down. So the last thing you want to do is get to somebody and need a great quote, you know, you need to write it down so that you can get all your facts together so you can go back and write your story. And, uh, not be able to actually put it in your notes. So we always carried around that holy trinity, if you will. I think I reference it in the book as rock, paper, scissors. You know, if it's not this one, it's that one. This one will be a better situation. And one thing that I've noted, although I'm not working in daily journalism every day now, um, is that a lot of folks, and I even did this back in my time and still do it, use a tape recorder or use your phone. But I don't know of anybody who doesn't carry one of those three things. And usually even the youngest of them 
carry all three of those because mm-hmm. you will find yourself <laughs> needing to write things down. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, have found themselves when you go into libraries and places where the people are particular about what you have in your pocket. And guess what? You can't take a felt tip pen in there. Mm-hmm. You can't take a ballpoint pen mm-hmm. in there, but they will let you take a not too sharp, sharpened pencil. You know, they don't want to have too fine of a point. So I've mm-hmm. even seen them wear it down a little bit with like a nail file or something, but they will let you take even into the Massachusetts archives, which have an original copy of the U S constitution and the Massachusetts constitution. They'll let me take a pencil in there. So, mm-hmm. um, that those three will let you get your story down no matter no matter what and they never run out of batteries well i think there's probably some people who have worked in journalism who are nodding along um, but probably <laughs> also some academics who are nodding nodding along the to the archive bit but maybe right. also taking some tips for about the other <laughs> pens as well so who knows um i do want to ask a little bit about though a community of pencil related people that you just touched on briefly in that answer um the people who maybe would be shuddering a little bit at the idea of breaking one in half Tell us about pencil collectors um, and especially kind of what to me, as I admit, a non-pencil collector, maybe that's my bias. Um, there does seem to be a bit of a focus, maybe an obsession on kind of who makes the pencils. This company is better than that company. This company is iconic, etc., etc. Why is this such a big focus? And if we're going to go into it, I mean, who are some of these companies um, that we should know about? Right. You know, I think it's part of that. What's the old movie line? We're always wanting the things that aren't wanting us. You know, we have in the pencil community and it, it, we are out there. I don't know if we're a legion, but there's thousands of us who uh, gather in now in Facebook groups. One more time, um, you know, technology is aiding we Luddites of the world. Right. Um, but uh there are communities of people out there who have used them because they are engineers, because they're architects or somebody in their family. Artists make up uh, a great uh, portion of various communities or people who, who like to draw and um, sketch and other things. Uh, good old fashioned carpenters and, and people who are out there working every day in their tool kit on the side of them and their tool bag and their toolbox, you'll see that they have carpenters pencils yet another form of pencil. People who are listening will know a carpenter pencil is a flat pencil, um, sometimes used by artists in other grades, but it's made flat uh, so that it won't roll off the, the wood when you're you know, cutting and, and all of that. Remember, measure twice, cut once. Um, so, but you have to do it on a mark, right? So you, you use a pencil. And why we focus on who made what is, um, just the most basic thing of wanting to know more about something. Different manufacturers made this simple technology differently and different grades of the pencil core. And again, I don't want people to click off and and go uh, fall asleep, but the grade of a pencil, you've seen it all. It's a number two pencil or an HB pencil, uh, an F for fine. And then they sometimes go all the way up to nine B and there's a pencil in the U.S. that's got X's after it. It's that soft of a core, and so it almost doesn't write words. It just sort of, um, you know, gets. It's just a very dark mark, and then it's very light. A lot of engineers, mathematics types in the U.S. will use very light, uh, hard graphite cores because they don't really need to be writing words after words. They want to be able to write down things. And so we all focus, as you can see in my short answer that became long, um, we all focus on what's in the middle, how they're made. And I, and I say this in the book, I don't believe that like number 2B, which is the ones we always had to use on tests here in the U.S. And, um, and 2B is a pretty standard uh, grade of, of graphite in pencils in the U.S. Um, and other places as well. I don't believe that 2B is exactly the same in every single pencil that you pick up, but it's roughly the same. But I do believe that if you use a 2B pencil made by Faber-Castell, you know, and it's shipped to you from Europe or even made in one of the factories somewhere else in the world, that you could pretty much bet your car that that pencil writes the same as anyone else manufactured by it. So there's that, right? You want to, as a user, you come to like something and how it works for you and as a tool. And so we focus on that. Then, of course, with the world of pencils, we have brands that are still carried on, but not by the original makers. And, uh, you know, we 
some legacy brands have gone out of business. Some have been absorbed by other people. So there, there's none of us who collect at any length, even those who might specialize in a certain kind of pencil, who don't want to know how a pencil made in 1915 in the UK or at the Eberhard Faber factory in Brooklyn, New York, how it wrote. And guess what? We can do that. We can experience it. Whereas some of the folks who maybe, um, you know, collect cars or love to ride in old cars, you know, they'll talk about that experience of, well, the car and the road and what, how they were able to, to mimic what the conditions were in the 1940s or the 1920s. But we know we can do that with the pencil. We can, and you're, and you're basically, um, you know, going back into time. And so you'll find a lot of the people in the community, even if they are the most uh, technical person and doing all sorts of things, they have that, that whimsical feel for, for the history the history of it. And, and there's this wonderful low entry to our community. That's a low bar for, you know, an entry to the community. You can pick up even a hundred year old pencil for a couple of dollars, you know, and you can collect it and look at it and you can find a pencil that has your family or an old, your hometown, a business from your hometown or some business that your family had a connection to because that they were uh, popular, particularly in the U.S., storing, you know, through, I would say, even some p- companies still give them out now, but certainly through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of it, it's holding that history in your hand and you use it. And who makes up our community is just always surprises me because they're everybody. <laughs> it's, I'm in one pencil group. The Erasable podcast has started smartly a community and it exists separate from the podcast now um in, in its own way and you know i'd say there's a few thousand several thousand people have signed on but it's a couple of thousand who are pretty active um regular who will chime in and post something when they see it in the world and you know uh, participate in the community that way so mm. we're out there we're all over the u.s all over the world i have friends over in the uk now i can actually call them friends and I met them and I met their friends. They're now people I've actually met in real life, um, you know, or I've traded correspondence with. And um, they, you know, I only know them through this weird pencil obsession. Hmm. <laughs> well, thank you for giving us a peek into those communities. Um, and I think the especially the waxing eloquent about holding history in your hand is probably going to persuade some listeners perhaps to join you. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember speaking recently to a wine historian who <laughs> bemoaned the fact that we actually cannot know how wine, you know, of the late 1800s tasted. A, uh what it tasted like then is not what it tastes like now if we unearthed a bottle of it. Um, And also just the way people described it would be so different. So it's definitely quite compelling that with a pencil, we literally can, you know, write the same way. Right. Um, And you talk about this in the book kind of in general, in terms of some of these big names and particular communities, but there does seem to be kind of some amount of consensus. Obviously I hesitate with any community to say full consensus, but you do make the statement that there is a pencil that might be a specific pencil called the most iconic ever made in America. <laughs> Given what you've just told us about these communities and their proliferation, that's a pretty bold claim. What's so yeah. special about the Blackwing? Well, the Blackwing, let me just, so I don't lose everybody there. The Blackwing was made uh, through really the 1980s, then again into the 20th, 21st century by a company named Everhard Faber, out of at that point had moved to uh, this tiny little town in north uh, east pennsylvania called pennsylvania which people like to point out um it uh called mountaintop pa and they made this pencil that is longer than most pencils um it has a crimped or a flat ferrule you know the metal cuff that holds on the, the the eraser at the end of a pencil is called a ferrule and this pencil was used a lot by writers because it was available in one grade only. So it always wrote the same way. And so a lot of writers or people who wanted them on their desk or used pencils for some of their work loved to buy them. They were readily available, not just through uh, companies or you had to order them. They were available in your local drugstores, in your local stationers, which neighborhoods had back in those days, even uh, some of the lower end department stores sold the Blackwing by Everhard Faber. It had a six, it was called the Blackwing 602. um, And it was made a certain grade. And I think it writes 
as a very soft pencil. It's almost buttery, which is why a lot of people people like it. And then adding to its allure is that um, musicians also used it. It was iconic in that sense. And I should mention this, of course. Musicians used it because of that flat, crimped uh, ferrule. It didn't roll off of music stands. And so it didn't roll off of pianos and things like that. And so because of that, and some of the, the sexy people who used it, it, it became something people saw those who wrote or, or were creators used. So it was a favorite of Leonard Bernstein, and you see all the photos of him with them. It was a favorite of John Steinbeck. It was a favorite of Oscar de la Renta. I've just named, you know, really sexy, interesting, creative types. Then all of a sudden, as, as you always need to have happen, you need that reverse in the script, right? It went out of business, basically uh, being available to all of us before the Eberhard Faber company went out of business. And it uh, just wasn't made anymore. So it became like, oh, no, this pencil that I love, this pencil that I've seen and it's in TV shows and everything else, I can't get anymore. So it was reborn by the Cal Cedar Company, California Cedar Company, who made the slats for all these original uh, manufacturers. And so they've re given it a rebirth and they've now made it be more than just the gray pencil that says half the pressure, twice the speed, and you know, embossed on it. But it, it's out there and it's recognizable. And I'm going to say something that'll shock and maybe some of the pencil community. I don't believe it was the best pencil ever Hard Faber ever made. And I don't. And I believe that its sister or sibling pencils were way better. Uh, its sibling pencils would have been the Microtomic, who any of your engineering friends who are listening and all of our uh, math people out there and maybe even more than a few uh, architects will recognize because it the Microtomic was made in all grades, and it was the 603 in the line. So you can see where the manufacturer was going with some of this, right? And it's made all the way up to like 9H, 9 hard. And, and they're, they're still out there, but it's not as iconic or as easy to make, you know, 18 grades of pencil. And similarly, and a lot of people will recognize this, I think, who are listeners, there was a yellow version of the Eberhard Faber that looks very much like the Blackwing, and it was called the Van Dyke. And it has a true like eraser colored eraser. And it too has uh, the crimped ferrule. It too has the adjustable eraser, which is always a favorite among all the people. And if folks are looking this up online, you can, the, not only is the ferrule crimped on the Blackwing, the Microtomic and the, um, the Van Dyke, you can pull the eraser out and replace the eraser. You can pull the eraser out and adjust the eraser. And that doesn't work, you know, on regular pencils. But I've, you know, when you write these things and when you think about them, or maybe just it's my journalism and history researcher kind of uh, side showing, I really wish I could go to the 1950s, to that new sparkling, where, you know, manufacturing factory up on the top of the hill in Pennsylvania, in rural, nearly uh, urban, rural, certainly not urban, uh, Pennsylvania, and say to the folks on the line, who are making this pencil, like this is going to be the most collected pencil in the United States. And even though you charge uh, an amazing dollar and a half for some of these pencils, which was shocking when most people could buy pencils for two, three cents, people are going to sell this very pencil for 40 bucks and maybe a box of them for $2,000. I think they would all like start shoving them in their you know, lunchbox, right? I mean, it was just like, it would surprise them because I know they didn't consider it to be their best. They had this whole line of pencils there, but also as a company, they had a pencil called the Mongol, M-O-N-G-O-L, Mongol. We've all seen it. You've seen it on book covers and other things because it's the most American kind of iconic pencil other than maybe the Dixon Ticonderoga that I'll come back to, but it has a black ferrule, the two stripes of black with a gold in the middle of the ferrule, and it was a straight pencil that was hexagon shaped, right? And they they sent that out that it was like, um, you know, the Cadillac of their line, right? I mean, it was just the best of the best. It was the, the number one pencil. And that's what they tried to promote. That's what all their ads were. And they really didn't advertise the Blackwing because they knew they had this niche audience of these artists, creators, musicians who bought the pencil, you know? So hmm. that's uh, that's one of those things. It's like, 
you and I might think this is what we do best, and then the world thinks we do that best, mm-hmm. right? Or history says, yeah. no, that was the most important thing you ever did, and it was just a regular day at the office, right? So Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting to have that comparison. Right. If I can ask you as an insider to this um, pencil community, anyone who might at this point um, listening to this be like, hmm, I want to get into this. Are there any rules about pencil collecting that these newcomers might need to be aware of? You know, I was I was thinking about I was thinking about this because people are like, how hard is it to join a certain group? And, you know, we do have some rules of the road. I'd tell you to go find some of the there's more than a few Facebook groups out there, that kind of thing. Um, There are other forums on, on Reddit for example, and even on some of the older uh, online platforms, um, most of the rules come down to because we are not trading, uh, you know, cars that are worth fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. Most of the rules come down to we do have rules, of course, uh, but most of the rules come down to being just a good person. There's no shame in our group, and I do reference this early on in the chapter about who are these people, and I am probably one of them. Um, there, there's no shame, and a lot of people do this. They'll jump into one of these Facebook groups and say, hey, I'm new here. What do I need to know? And a lot of people say, hey, we've got some rules over here for posting. It's not We're not set up to be how can you make a million dollars off of all your pencils, that sort of thing. We have some insider things. We A lot of people in our groups will gladly send uh, pencils to any newcomer. I've even sent, you know, vintage pencils along. There's one absolute rule. I should say this straight up and find somebody, you know, don't write it down now necessarily, but how you mail or ship pencils, there's absolutely rules on that. It's like, think of it like a college student. They should never travel alone. Bad things will happen to them. Um, they should always travel in groups uh, because the way that postal services work um, but we people will ship all over the world, and we I just had a, a package I sent as part of a Christmas swap finally arrive in Portugal. I was somewhat embarrassed, but it, it apparently got stuck in my customs department here in the U.S. and then in the customs department over in Portugal. But people will share. People love to share their knowledge. Um, you know, people will find something new. They'll see something on TV, and others will pipe up and jump in and share their knowledge but it comes down to you know like so much else you don't have to don't be a jerk participate as much as you want or as little as you have it it's not like a athletic event where you have to come every week or we can't play the game you know so it's uh it's become a great place for a lot of us to and particularly i would say and i during covid so many of us were stuck in one place and you didn't have a lot. And we even did Zoom calls organized. Uh, you know, there's one guy, Ed Kemp, who I know who does zines. And that's how I know him as well from zines. He's a pencil collector. He organized these meetups. And we had people who he picked the time that seemed weird for East Coast. He's down in New Jersey. But no, he picked it so that people could get up early, but not too early, all the way around the world, halfway around the world. And we were all on there. And sometimes it was 40 or 50 of us. So, um, And it would not always just stay totally on pencils. But we would ask people, how do you store them? What do you do? And people will will share all of that. They really will. Um, And that's part of the reason why I like this, this simple thing. Yeah, no, that's a lovely reason. Um, So thank you for sharing that for anyone who might want to join. I'd love to um, perhaps pivot away from pencil collectors, though, and uh, pick up on something you mentioned briefly earlier um, and talk about in the book that I think is really interesting. Um, The idea that we are very familiar with images of pencils, even icons of pencils, Um, even if we actually don't maybe use them as much as we did before we had things like phones that have more than the Boston Globe on them. (laughs) So why do you think we have so many pencil images, pencil icons, um, even though we're actually not using them as much? Right. I, I was, this was something that sort of caught me off guard because it's rarely a pen, although sometimes it's a pen that looks very much like a fountain pen. Um, I've even seen some that are, you know, the, the quill kind of feather, but in almost overwhelmingly it's a pencil and I think the pencil almost makes more sense than some of the other icons because 
particularly uh, in the earliest levels of school, students are still using pencils. So it is something that, that's burned into their memory. They don't have to have to learn it. But as Tim Delger of, you know, he's a graphic designer who I went to and said, all right, there's pencils all over these covers. There's pencils that are the icon that says sign here. And, and it really does come down to it, it is an object that we at least did till now and during the transition to icons, not iconic, but those icons that we now use and have on our phones and everything, it does symbolize to write, to note, to, to use, sign here kind of things. And, it, and it's universal. Someone in, in Turkey knows that a pencil writes. Someone in Turkey might not know write here or sign here means that, right? I mean, so it, it's become so easy for them. And then it, it really is the pencil looks an awful lot like the pencil and it hasn't changed what it looks like for so many years. But um, the, the phone has, right? And the phone image, which I see everywhere I travel, no matter where I travel in the world, and there's very few places that still have a rotary dial phone or the buttons with the handset that sits on top of it. And yet that's become, you know, the icon for it. Or my favorite is when they show a steam engine of a train, you know, which where's the last time you saw one of those except for a Harry Potter movie. And um, the, the steam engine will be like, hey, the trains are over there. And I'm like, oh, OK, they're just trying to give us it quickly. I think in the case of the pencil, it, it truly still is out there. And so in this case, the the picture is not a thousand words it's just three you know hey right here you know that kind of thing um but it but it's instantaneous and even to the point that um apple for example right the biggest technology company i've seen in my lifetime uh did not call it a stylus they called it the apple pencil and i think they did it for a reason you know it's this writes and this lets you do these things on these pieces of technology. Hmm. And it's very clear. So clear. Yeah, that, make, that makes Crystal sense. Crystal clear, right? You know. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, I guess, related to what you've already said, almost almost hinted at by its absence. So let, let's bring it out explicitly. We've talked about people loving pencils and why. We've talked about people finding pencils very clear as an instruction across languages. Does anyone dislike pencils? I'm so glad you asked this question because <laughs> I had not ever, not once, not in all my time as a collector, people knew me in my family and my friend group, even all the way back to high school, whatever, as, uh, you know, she collects pencils or Carol likes pencils. It wasn't like this big thing, you know, but people would send me pencils. They would bring me back pencils uh, from their travels. Uh, you know, you'd sit next to someone who was a CEO. I document one of those in the book. And he's, you know, was one of those rat-tat-tat U.S. CEO types from a business school kind of background. And tell me something I don't know kind of thing. And I said, okay, you're going to get my mini TED Talk on uh, pencils here, buddy. And I never in all those travels met anybody who hated pencils. I met people who don't use them, people who really don't have them in their house, but never to the hate stevel, you know, level of anything. People might not like certain aspects of them. I have a left-handed uh, friend who writes with his left hand, and sometimes certain grades smudge on him. So he's very fussy about when he uses a pencil. But that isn't a hatred of pencils. Until I turned in my manuscript, and one of the editors in the series read my manuscript, approved it, sent it on, and then confessed. I don't like pencils. In fact, I hate them. And I thought, oh, my God, why would you ever green light my project? Why would, you know, how are you part of all of this? And, and he did it, you know, in an email to all of the group. And I was shocked. So I went back and re-looked at it. And I, so I said I had never met anybody who didn't like, you know, who hated pencils and changed that to until I did this book. I had never met anybody. And he did not like, and it's a lot of things that I find comforting about a pencil. There's, there's the sound of a pencil. There's the scratching of the pencil. There's... You know, when you sharpen it, you get sometimes even the smell of fresh cedar, um, you know, because it can really, and this is another thing that we'll spend hours talking to, um, start talking to each other about, you know, what kind of wood goes into the pencils. And, and so 
all of that that I loved, he did not like. And But he was now having pencils in his household and tolerating them because of his children. And at schools, you've got to use pencils. And so he, he was using them and he saw my appreciation for them. Mine, as you know, you've, you've actually probably read better and more closely all of these books in the object lesson series than I have. But sometimes people write about an object and absolutely hate it, you know, and so, or it's not revered. And I realized that I wrote a bit of a love letter to the pencil. Uh, so it caught me off guard. And I have to say that um, I now have appreciation for some people don't like the mess or whatever, but you can make that go away. It's not something that overwhelms your life, I don't think, unless you have a massive collection. So I, I had not met anybody, not even somebody who didn't use pencils. I had never met <laughs> someone who had not <laughs> who had went to the level of hatred, but they are out there. And I guess that should not have surprised me as much as it did, hmm. but it, it, it does. Yes. I am. I was very intrigued to read that in the book. Um, and obviously kind of immediately made a note of must ask about this because it hadn't <laughs> occurred to me either. Uh, so thank you for explaining. Speaking of this book as part of the object lesson series, um, you make a comment that pencils might be, quote, the most objecty of objects. Given that the series is called Object Lessons, there are perhaps some other people who might disagree. Hmm. Why do you think pencils deserve this title? When, when I was going into this, uh, Sticker, for example, hadn't been, uh, hadn't been released yet. And, and I know that I can walk over and touch an air conditioner and I can touch you know, a skateboard in, in that sense. I was really thinking about it from, from both ends of the series of, you know, a tumor, which is one of the object lessons, right? Tumor is not something that most of us, even people who have had tumors have ever touched or they think about as an object. But of course it is. It's a thing. And it and I'm not saying anybody else doesn't deserve, this should be a series of one, right? You know, it's there's a reason why there's a, nearly a hundred books so far, right? In the series. For me, it was looking at that point in the telling of it of its life, that it is a it is this thing that uh, you know we can hold. It's a thing that most people have actually used. Uh, most people might not have used. Many people might not have used a stroller or a skateboard. You know, or or they might understand air conditioning but not process it that way. Um, it's also an object that you can that truly is a small enough thing in the way that one definition of object goes, right? That it can be in your home. Even non-users probably have one in their junk drawer if they're a person who has a junk drawer, right? They uh, they have them, they've used them over their life and they also have a personal story about it. So I was trying to get more to the universality of, of the pencil. I, I wasn't running anybody else down. I've bought, read so many in the series, um, but I was trying to say to those people like, and if I still hopefully have them at that point in the book, like this thing really is truly an object. And that's the way I think a lot of people who aren't pencil lovers, whatever, they think of it as that. It, it is a tool. It is, a, it, is, it is something you can you can use. And that's what I meant by it. And I almost wondered if it was too commonplace to fit in the object lesson series. And I am thrilled that the, the folks who decided decided not um mm. you know in that in that sense because truly i guess you could make water an object and all you know all of that right you know and and i i um that's what i was going for was the fact that it could be right now in your pocket or in your bag you know mm -hmm. and and in that sense like stop for a moment and think about this mm -hmm. yeah no i think it really definitely does that um I know that I found a number of things in the book kind of like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, and I think in your answers that you've given us, there's many elements of that that listeners might be coming across themselves. Is there anything you were surprised by in putting this book together, um, even if it's a detail that maybe didn't make it into the final version? Um, well, I thought of one when we were uh, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the black the black wing made by Eberhard Faber. Uh, one thing, and I kind of reference this, but but not in the detail, and it maybe it deserves at some point in life. But um, the reason Eberhard Faber stopped making the Blackwing 602 when it did is because the crimping machine that crimped the ferrule broke at the factory in Pennsylvania. 
that's it. That's the reason why they stopped putting them out for, for all that time. And to me, it would be like, imagine Jaguar not making a line of cars because they don't have the machine that makes the hubcaps or something. You know what I mean? It's not the rest of it. It's just that. And they just stopped doing it because they were moving, moving on. And, you know, when you come to some of these things and one thing that I learned and I, 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 um, because our area, this pencil world uh, really only has one seminal book and I owe a debt of gratitude as to anybody uh, who writes about pencils or even references them to the now late Henry Petrovsky. He's an engineering professor who worked out of North Carolina for most of his career and um, he wrote the definitive history of, of pencils. So there's a lot of stuff if your listeners want to find even more than what I touch upon. But even even there, he found part of the problem was that a lot of us researched till or people when they would look things up before they get to a book stage, right? You research till you find the answer that you think is the right one and you keep moving because there are references to pencils or there are advertisements to pencils in newspapers and things. And this is another reason why I love, you know, newspapers.com and, and online forums because I could go find it and keep going past that because you can now get the full story. And I, I dedicate a chapter to that, you know, pencils aren't used in space and pencils can now be used in space, and that pens couldn't write in space. And those were the things that we always, uh, you know, were told it was kind of this what old wives tale. And I spend a lot of time talking about it, maybe too much, but uh, that was just out there. And, and it hadn't really been, been pulled together. Uh, but Petrosky wrote about it a bit, and I, I take it a little further. Um, we all go looking for some of this information of like, and this is way in the weeds, but who picked the colors and why certain things were imprinted a certain way. And there are, uh, if you have anybody out there who's in the graphics world, I find it charming and wonderful and brilliant that they didn't, most places did not use a family of typefaces or they would create dyes for the imprints that were separate for each pencil. There is no universality. There's nothing even uniform about brands within a certain company. And, and so the different pencils will, will look like a typeface sampler, which for me is thrilling. But I've also run into graphics and artists and people, graphic designers and the like, who are like, no, this is a nightmare. They should all be uniform. They should at least look like they came from the same family. And, and when you do some of the research or you talk to some of the people, guess what? It was like Frank on the line this Tuesday thought that pencil should be green. Or we had extra, we had extra paint, so we're going to do this. <laughs> and, and it wasn't some grand, you know, can you imagine putting out even a brand of, you know, potato chips or something that you didn't have for market studies? And they were sometimes changing it on the line, you know. And so now we all search for that pencil because it's become an iconic, if not e easily recognizable brand or the mm -hmm. graphite's so great. And you'll see the, the edge of a ferrule. I can tell what you're writing with. Um, and so I can also tell, and I say this in the book, I can also tell when somebody's a pencil fan by what they have right there in their, in their kit. You know, like you're using mm -hmm. that pencil, you're, you're somebody who cares about what you're, mm -hmm. you're writing about. So huh. that's, that's quite fun. Um, I, I, I really can't think of that many things. Um, where you, there is that kind of oh we've got extra paint okay we're gonna do that or you know someone on the line makes a decision like when does that ever happen um, right. <laughs> so fabulous to hear that okay turns out it, it happened with pencils um right. you know that that's a great historical nugget so thank you for sharing that one with us um i suppose there are people i was gonna say to you, there are people who hmm. insist because there's a there are apartments now in jersey city uh new jersey uh, the town called the city called Jersey City. There are people who insist that the old Ticonderoga factory, you, that you can still smell the cedar, and that you can still smell it at times. Mm. And there are people who believe that at the old Eberhard Faber factory, which has not been used as a pencil factory since the 1950s, <laughs> that they that they can still, or people who are new to it who don't understand that Dixon or Ticonderoga or what the markings are on the outside of the building. Uh, you know, or Eberhard Faber on the outside of the building that they will say, it smells an awful lot like cedar here. Or sometimes I smell that, you know, wetness mm. of the graphite. So we know that, you know, that it was very much a part of the neighborhood and the fabric. But um, yeah, these folks lived and worked in these communities. So I think it was just like they put it together. They did it. Mm. You know, it was very mm -hmm. much hands-on kind of thing. So 
All right. Well, the next thing I'd like to ask you about um, is also in some ways kind of hands-on, but I admit it does not smell of cedar, um, which is probably, (laughs) maybe we should look into that. But um, I'd like to ask you kind of less about pencils and more about the book, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, as with your background in journalism, as you said earlier, daily journalism, I mean, that's a lot of writing. Um, that's, you know, an incredibly honed skill in a way that coming more from the academic side of things, like, uh, would terrify me to write that much every day, all the time. Uh, I mean, there's a reason I'm not a journalist, right? Um, but clearly that gives you a honed skill in a really particular way. But then it's like, okay, but hang on, this is published by Bloomsbury Academic, but right. it's a teeny tiny cute book that's doing something very interesting. That's part of a weird series. Um, that's kind of a lot of different types of writing, a lot of different ways of thinking mm. about writing. Um, that's a lot of different sort of almost genres, I suppose, to think mm. about and think about where you're sitting within them. So could you maybe talk about that side of this book, less the pencils and more the kind of experience of writing it and what it's made you think about or reflect on about kind of what is academic writing today? Right. Right. Well, and uh- uh, for me, I've thought about this, and hope, hopefully I didn't think about it too much going into it. I was aware of it when I first started, and then I realized I kind of had to get over that if it's stage fright or, uh-oh, I was the dog that caught the car. Now what do I do with it? Um, because they said you can write this book, so go ahead and do it. And I started in a place that there are so many things that journalism, even daily journalism, share with academic writing. And I know the timeline isn't always one of them. Although these um, object lessons books have probably a quicker turnaround than a lot of the folks who are among your, you know, your listeners, right? I mean, we don't have five years to do this. We don't have three years, but it's not a crash book or anything that comes out that quickly. But you set your timeline and you work with them. But we do share a lot of things. And I started with the most basic that everyone does. And that was research and that was uh interviews that was calling the archives you know combing the archives looking around uh and just trying to figure out who or what and trying to figure out how this all fit together was there a narrative there and or what what could the narrative be um and trying to find in some cases in with my subject and i'm sure a lot of your listeners face this but with my subject, one thing that was different for me than being a, a um, you know, writing narrative long form journalism, but being more of a true daily breaking news journalist, I, I was writing some first source material here. I had to go find people who knew this, even though some books had already been done, you know, to go back to get the stories. And then I realized that I was going to have to put myself in there a little bit, which is why I've been. Uh, you know, had read and, and absorbed as many of the other Object Lessons books, they truly are, in a sense, um, narrative long-form journalism, you know, with uh, with a boost of the academic background. I mean, you know, it has all of the markings on it. I chose to do endnotes and footnotes and have all of those, although some in the Object Lessons series don't uh, do that. But I also, if some of your academic uh those with an academic background who, who read uh, academic books one way, I, I beg their forgiveness because I also do have the journalism uh, tick of telling you who my source is because I used my sources in my storytelling, right? So I, I didn't just footnote that the story was written by Bill Eichenberg and that it had been in the Washington Post or the Baltimore Sun. I wanted to use that he was re- researching that. So that's a bit of a, of a tick for me, but it's also a way to give it some, some credibility in the, in the storytelling. Because as I point out, I, I think I'm expert in knowing some of them, but I don't hold myself to be the expert on all things. Pencil, because I know 10 other people who are expert in those things. So I went and found them and I found the archives. And But then who wants to pick this up? And as you've noted a couple of times, they're these wonderful, uh, cute, even books. Um, some of them cover very uh, tough and, and uh, serious subjects. For me, they fall in line uh, with the Bloomsbury Academic uh, Object Lesson series falls in line with the MIT Essential, Near- Essential Knowledge series. And even if I can be so bold as to say the Oxford uh, Very Short Introduction to, I have just thrown myself into the company of people who 
are are pretty lofty. Get a load of me. But it's the idea that you could read this book on a on a flight, you know, on an air, you know, a flight from New York to London. Uh, that you could read it at home, uh, you know, over whatever. You could give it as a gift, and that you'd know enough, or maybe all you need to know about a subject, or it would open up a door to other things. And that's why I went with maybe more of the narrative style and, and uh, you know, and I know you've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, uh, many of my predecessors and um, even some of the, uh, you know, read all of the, most all of the books in the series, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I took from it, I, I will tell you, I, I am a fan of Matthew Battles' tree. I even reference it at the bottom, of, at the end of the book. And if anybody's out there looking to, to read something wonderful, read that. Um, but if you're looking to write one of these, don't do what I did because you'll be paralyzed for a couple of days going, <laughs> can I do that? You know, like, and um, so, but, and I've also had people point out, you know, and this is also a, a something I learned in the journalism world. I mean, my leading anecdote, I open the book, not with a story of a pencil, but with a story of a pen. So, um, which is, you know, I've learned to use what's in front of you. And I felt like that was a great way to get into the, to the story mm-hmm. of the pencil. Cause people don't think, unless they think a lot of a pencil already, they don't think a lot about pencils. So mm-hmm. I wanted, I wanted to get them and get in there. So it is a bit of narr- narrative nonfiction instead of maybe traditional course mm-hmm. material. Um, but I, I hope I use, got all of your, the rules, right. You know, like in the end notes <laughs> well, and the think- footnotes and all of that. So, you know, yeah. The, the fun part is that a lot of the rules are kind of perhaps more up for more up for interpretation than maybe we learn as undergraduates. So right. um, very, very interesting to hear you talk about that. Um, I do have one final question, if you don't mind. Uh, obviously, this book has been with you in various ways for quite a while. Uh, the subject is clearly something you are passionate about. Is there anything you might be working on, though, now that this is out in the world, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about pencils that you'd like to highlight to the audience? Although I will still be talking about pencils forever um, (laughs) and and actually hoping to go to the American Pencil Collectors Convention this June in uh, the Midwest in the U.S. um, And and we'll get my fix there. I'm now started working on um, and it's, it's really continuing uh, an unofficial series. I'm working on a book about Boston area military veterans, many of whom are World War II veterans who we are losing, um, you know, that greatest generation. Uh, we're losing a lot of them to just age and, and, and time. Uh, but it's the seventh book that I've done, like I said, in an unofficial series with a Boston photographer, Bill Brett. And um, they are really coffee table books. Um, and we've done them six previous ones on Boston women, uh, you know, Boston Irish. Uh, we've picked different subjects, and he has photographed these amazing, and they're men, women, people of all backgrounds. Uh, it's amazing that, that the military history of some of these people who've lived, among, I've lived among them for so long, and I didn't know they were the hero of this battle or that battle. And um, regardless of what you think of, of war, this isn't pro-war, this isn't any of that. It's just to celebrate those who were called to service and answered that call. And, and um, so it really is a, a shift for me. Um, and I, and, and it's, I'm glad to do that. And that's truly probably uh, the best part about when you worked in daily journalism, you know, you uh, got to get a different subject most days, right. Mm-hmm. Or you had mm-hmm. something else in front of you. And so I, I relish that and I hope to take it on with, you know, can I take it on with a passion that I have for pencils? I hope so, right? You know, because this is this is what I have to do now. But mm-hmm. that's what that's what I'm working on, and hopefully, it'll be out by early next year. So we'll, we'll, or if not, by the Christmas season. So yeah. Well, good luck with that. Um, and you. of course, while you are off working on that project, uh, listeners can read about the pencil. Because guess yes. what? The book is called Pencil and uh, it's published by Bloomsbury. And thank you so much, Carol, for coming onto the podcast and telling us all about it. Thank you for having me in my pencils. Thank you.